Welcome to the Wiggly Podcast from the Wiggly Sofa. I'm Heather from Wiggly Wigglers and I am joined today by Richard and Farmer Phil. Hooray! This week's show we are going to test Farmer Phil's wheat. There's a few moisture issues, there's a bit of rejection at the mill and we're going to do a live Wiggly testing to see if Farmer Phil is full of moisture or not (laughs) or something we've also got some twitter questions if you're not following me on twitter you can follow me at at wiggled and farmer phil is farmer phil but without an e if you go to the other farmer phil he's a different farmer phil and he'll be saying sense so you need f-a-r-m-r-p-h-i-l what is this Twitter business, Ev? You, you, uh, you said to me the other day, someone's following me on Twitter, and I thought, oh, really? <laughs> it meant nothing to me at all. And, it's um, free, Rich. Does, does that inspire your enthusiasm? <laughs> free is good, certainly. <laughs> but what's the point, Ev? It would be about? absolutely pointless for you, Rich, right. because I don't believe that you could write or speak or do anything within 140 characters. <laughs> I think your Twitter would tweet for years. Yeah, well, possibly. (laughs) So, to you and me, that means that instead of emailing individually, you can actually put out a message to all of your followers and vice versa. So, it's a very efficient way of exchanging information as long as the information is worth exchanging. Okay. So, if I'm following somebody and they say gone down the pub having a drink unless it's farmer phil where i can immediately reply saying no you're not then i unfollow them or alternatively i'll see you there so (laughs) so these messages automatically pop up somewhere on your uh, on your computer yes you have a page of twitter posts i think it's wonderful but then i think facebook is fantastic so perhaps i'm biased so twitter's an abbreviated version of facebook is that what you're trying to very good way of putting it And for us, it means that we can get our message out there. So at the moment, we're doing a bit on crunch lunch. So I tweeted that I suggested that Shropshire Radio did a bit on grow your own lunch. And you, Ricardo, picked up the gauntlet. The baton. The baton. I ran the gauntlet whilst picking up the baton. And we're all singing from the same cricket sheet. (laughs) Indeed. Anyway, I'm not very good on those. So you picked up the... Baton, yep. and uh, you were hung yeah, we by your that, own petard, yeah, we did, we did which is in there, fact a, a device for holding gunpowder, which instead of shooting, <laughs> you, you throw it out the back and you hang yourself, apparently. <laughs> but anyway, and you went on the show and talked about Crunch Lunch, and you can hear That's that good. on Radio Shropshire, BBC Radio Shropshire. Yeah, I imagine it's probably on Listen Again. Online, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, getting back to the point, this week's show, not only have we got Moisture Meter from Farmer Phil, we've got a couple of Twitterers questions... We've also got um, facts on short-eared owls, or as I called them this morning, short-owled ears. And we've also got a bit on permaculture. Music, maestro. we're wiggly busy we are wiggly wiggly busy rich do you want to know what's hot babe yes yeah well it certainly seemed busy when i walked into the office this morning it was a veritable throng 
there were uh, in fact no one was able to talk to me which <laughs> <laughs> is quite sad that Although, didn't put you uh, off Rachel, you Rachel did manage to drag herself uh, off the phone for a moment <laughs> just to insult my, uh, my attire and then went back to uh, busying herself with all things floristry like well the most popular product at the moment over the last seven days is the pask flower really have you seen the pask flower it's beautiful you look it? it's absolutely gorgeous Stunning, yeah yeah and okay. it blooms in Easter, so I suppose uh, now right, is the tarmac. perfect moment to have it. Yeah. And um, it produces cardiogenic toxins, which cause the heart to slow in humans. So you mustn't eat it because you could be sick, have tension and go into a coma. Oh, OK. So as long as you avoid eating it, right. it's so, absolutely beautiful. And it so no be, more uh, grazing in the flower bed? No, no. no. What, about, what about sort of those high-tension moments? Would it be worth sort of snapping off a sem and <laughs> sucking up some sap just to calm you down a little bit? Or I Mark, do you think? bet you James Wong will have it on how to grow your own drugs <laughs> in a week or two. We'll uh, have yeah. to see. Yeah. Anyway, facts on short-eared owls. And we'll hear about what they're up to. But here we go. The Latin name for short-eared owls is Asio. Flamius. Yeah, there you are. Why are we talking about short-eared owls anyway? Do you know what? I don't think I've ever seen a short-eared owl. Farmer Phil has. Well, you might recall, Rich, that we have a one field that has been set aside now for 10 or 15 years. Yeah. And a couple that big, of years... That big area that we walked around. Yeah. yeah. What's yeah. it called? A hopping and stocking. Yeah. So you might remember that when set-aside ceased and therefore, you know, we still pay the rent on this field the options were that we, we plough it up, bring it back into production, or do something else with it. And I would confess that it's a fairly marginal field. And so Wigley's, for one year, said that they would pay the equivalent of the opportunity cost and we'd use it for people to visit and what have you and see what happened. Yeah. And you and I last summer found, I think, eight or nine varieties of butterfly in there. And we found some quite interesting plants, including Tutson, which is an indicator, a species of ancient woodland. That's right. And we've sort of rotationally topped bits of it to make sure that it doesn't sort of become afforested again. Yeah, that's right. There's got a lot of silver birch coming out. That's right. Yeah. So we, yeah. we read the riot act to those, but we've done it in patches so that we haven't sort of completely desecrated the place. Um, and so this winter... We were actually uh, shooting in one of the neighbouring coppices, you know, neighbouring um, little wooded areas that adjoin the, this field. Yeah. And this bird got up off the floor in front of me, and I thought, that's strange, because it looked like a small buzzard, and it flew like a small buzzard, but it wasn't a small buzzard. And it came round, and I looked, and it was an owl. And you could see it was an owl. It looked like an owl. Yeah. But it wasn't a barn owl or a tawny owl, because it was much slimmer yeah. You know, its face, its eyes are closer together and all the rest of it. Anyway, to cut the long story short, identified it. I've got a fact about its eyes. Short-eared owl's eyes are yellow. Well, I probably didn't see that at that point, but we were able to identify it as a short-eared owl. Was that after you shot it and picked it up? <laughs> no, I'm pleased to say that we had not shot it, but we did fairly soon establish that there we were a shot. pair of them. <laughs> And since then, we've seen them a number of times, because as usual, <coughs> if you approach these areas on a tractor, the birds are f- fairly unfussed. Yeah. And so that I've seen a pair of them together. Over the last sort of two or three months, we've seen them around up there, so it would suggest that they will probably try and nest. Yeah, yeah. Fact 
In the UK, short-eared owls breed primarily in northern England and Scotland. Perhaps they're increasing their range. Maybe. I believe they also breed on the mountains in Wales. They are a mountainous bird, aren't they? They like uplands. Yeah. And so it's quite unusual for them. I've never seen them on this farm, for sure. But the other problem, well, not problem, but normally they nest on the ground. And they roost on the ground, too, to some extent. And therein lies a problem, because in the uplands of Britain, old brock hasn't populated those areas. No. I'm sorry to say, for the owl's sake, that brock has populated these areas fairly comprehensively. Yeah. On discovering a short-eared owl's nest full of eggs, one would assume that he'll think that's just a jolly job, which will be a pity. And he's right next door, isn't he? Well, he is right there, though. That There's a set just there. there yeah. there's, there's a big, big set just in the corner of the hoppy and stocking wood there. It's such a dodgy ground, isn't it? Ground nesting birds, you know, I mean, it, they've got their work cut out because you, not only have you got your stoats and your weasels and your... your I mean, stoats are particularly fond of, mm. uh, of eggs and foxes and badgers and all the rest of it. But of course, you've got all the eyes from the sky as well. You've got all your carrying crows and your magpies and the jays and everything else to, to pick out your eggs, which is <laughs> <laughs> well, there. The reason they do it is that if you normally nest on a mountain... There's no trees because you're above the tree land and you're on heathland, so you nest on the ground. What about curlews, yeah. though? And uh, Well, I, and I was going to say that I'm convinced that our curlews that we're... I'm, I'm not going to suggest that predation is necessarily the only problem. I think it's a combination of things, but I am convinced it's a significant part of the problem. Yeah. And our curlews have gone, I think, mostly through predation of badgers... And yeah, I don't know about that, Phil. I think that could be a bit of a farmer thing, trying to blame someone else for changing well, agricultural practice. Given the number of buzzards that we have around here and that the liking for curlews when they're little chicks to run up and down the fields in line astern, I would think that Mr Buzzard would think that that was pretty fair game. It's an interesting point you make there about buzzards because their population has increased dramatically over the last few years. I mean, I remember as a kid very rarely seeing a buzzard and if you saw one, it was the most amazing thing. And now they're everywhere. They're as common as... And the other day, they're they're not stupid buzzards. I was ploughing over at Whitfield, which is our farm sort of eight miles from here. This time of year, the cock pheasants are at their biggest and strongest. You know, they are big birds, aren't they? Yeah. Big birds. Big birds. (laughs) And uh, I, I was watching two, two buzzards <laughs> stood in a, a stag-headed oak tree and they were at the same height at either extremity of, of the tree. Right. And there were various pheasants picking around in the stubble underneath right. the tree. And you could see these two buzzards, they'd look at each other and then you, you could see them look down and they were just stood there. And then in complete synchronisation, the pair of them dropped out of the tree and went for the same cock pheasant, and they both hit it at the same time, and the one was upside down on his back, the buzzard, with his talons getting hold of it, and the other one was on top. Really? And between them, they killed it. Wow. And then proceeded And you watched all this? Absolutely. Sat on the tractor, and they did... (coughs) What intrigued me was that I've never, ever seen buzzards work as a team. Yeah. Because he would have a job... To get I think hold you've got of a, a there, cock pheasant strongly enough to keep hold of it. You know, they're strong birds. I uh, think you'll find there's very little documented about a cooperative uh, working well, between buzzards. I've never buzzards. seen it in my life before. Yeah, no, no. I was close enough, you could see it, and what intrigued me was that for a buzzard to be literally upside down, right on his back, yeah. with his talons yeah, gripping yeah. on yeah, like hell, just hanging on in there, and his mate yes. on top, yeah. dispatching. He'd, he'd, he'd obviously done that before. And I thought, 
whether they were related, I don't. You know, it's difficult to know. We've got family groups of buzzards around here. Yeah, they might have been related. Have been. They might have they been were siblings. siblings. Yeah, yeah, they weren't weren't the biggest buzzards, so it might be they were youngsters. Yeah, but I've never seen it before. I'll tell you what I saw the other day. Just just, just before we move on, it was a, really, a, no, a buzzard Always thing. No, no, not at all. I can't compete with that. I've got to say, I mean, that's that's in the realm of its own. That really is. That that's incredible. But I was <laughs> I walked down to the paddock the other day, and I suddenly heard this squealing, 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 like a, you know, it was a, obviously a rabbit. And I sort of and I was I looked up, and there's a buzzard with the tiniest baby rabbit oh. in its talons flying about 15 foot above my head <laughs> down into the corner this little baby rabbit oh. oh it's probably just come out of its burrow probably thinking oh this is oh this is a big wide world crossed <laughs> <laughs> I'm 300 foot in the air to go back to the original point that predation might not be the whole story yeah. but it is absolutely for sure a major part of it yeah yeah no it's, you're absolutely right I mean it's, it's uh, I suppose it's survival of the fittest though uh, why is it that buzzards have, have increased dramatically over the past few decades? Well, dun, dun, it, dun. it is almost embarrassing to admit it, but of course, shoots used to shoot them. Yeah, yeah, they did. I mean, it gamekeepers did used to it shoot wasn't, quite a lot of buzzards. It wasn't legal, but a buzzard that knows how to catch pheasant poults is a nightmare to a gamekeeper. Yeah. And so the gamekeeper would thin them out. Yeah. And actually, the same was true of badgers, although it was legal to shoot a badger before 1996, I think. But the effect was that it just kept a lid on the population. It didn't wipe them out, didn't wipe the buzzards out. Yeah. But it just kept them thinned out. And these are species that have no predators. It's a funny thing, you know, when people talk about others, they, off, they sort of categorise them. So people would say about someone that killed a buzzard, shot a buzzard, as, oh, they must be horrible people to do that. And I remember one of the first instances, in fact, the very first time I ever saw a buzzard, I was probably about eight years old. And I was to stay with my godfather at the time in a little house in the woods. And, uh, and the gamekeeper came up into the woods, you know, obviously it was a bit of part of a big shooting estate. And uh, he, he said, oh, come and have a look at this. And he opened the back of his Land Rover and he got out this big floppy buzzard that he just shot. Mm. And he said... God, he said, I got him, I got him, you know, and that was the first person I ever saw was a dead one because they used to, you know, quite literally shoot uh, on sight anything, any raptor, really. Mm. It didn't matter what it was. I think probably kestrels were, were left alone, but certainly uh, goshawks and buzzards, you know, they, they, were, they were kind of just shot. And, you know, you think, oh, it's a horrible thing to do, but actually... He, I know some gamekeepers are a bit wild, but he was a really decent bloke, you know, really good, friendly, help anybody out, all that kind of thing. I but, had exactly yeah. the same experience of that in Monington Woods with my Uncle Bill. Right. I used to go with him, and he was uh, one of the gamekeepers, and the first buzzard I met was dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, you cruel man. But do you know what? He loved those birds, and yeah. he loved the, being a part Wild of nature. Life. And I think... What we've all forgotten is, and myself included, over those years in between, is that actually they had a healthy respect. He didn't want to wipe them out. He loved them. Yeah. But he was so proud when he shot one because it was man against beast. And people will say, but he had a gun. But it's not that easy, is it? No, it's, it's a bit subjective, really. I mean, do you imagine you know, your average kind of member of the, uh, of the RSPCA, you know, seeing a buzzard... <laughs> Last thing they want to see is it folding out of the sky and being picked up by, but by the whole, somebody. The but the whole so. thing is about, is about balance. But would and your it, average member of the RSPCA be happy to see a little bunny rabbit flying across the yeah, sky? Yeah, nature's uh, red and tooth and claw. It's, it's absolutely well, right. Well, we're, we're going to get into an interesting discussion in a minute because going back to set-aside, which was the original thing, and I think we've, we've got a 
Twitter question from oh, Tim T. Here we are. I asked on Twitter, is there anything you want to ask on this week's show? And Tim T, who's a farmer from Shropshire, says, How about the insane set aside requirement? Much current pet rat subject. <laughs> well, essentially, and as briefly as I can, that so we've had one year where they abolished set-aside because the price of wheat went through the roof, so it was perceived to be short. So the idea was that because the livestock farmers, their feed costs were going through the roof, they would abolish set-aside and it would therefore increase the supply of wheat onto the market, which would reduce the price. And that happened, and the price has been duly reduced, and there is now a surplus of wheat, at least in this country. So now they think they want to bring set-aside back, partly for that, but mostly because the government are under extreme pressure from groups such as the RSPB, Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, that the environmental benefits of set-aside will be lost if people plough it all up. And back to our short-eared owls, there won't be any short-eared owls at Lower Blakemere if we plough up the set-aside or improve it into grassland, and there won't be eight or nine species of butterfly. And therein lies the conundrum, because... How do you put a value as a farmer, as Wiggly Wigglers, as a member of the public, on that 20-acre patch of ground? And are you prepared to pay loads more for your food to have bits of ground like that? You know, My landlord isn't going to say, oh, Farmer Phil, don't bother paying the rent on that 20 acres because you're a good old boy and you just haven't bothered to farm it. How much is the rent on the 20 acres? About £70 an acre in that case. So that's a lot of money, isn't it? Not, um, to, not to put to good our use. Rents so that is a personal cost if you don't plough up that <coughs> ground of £1,400. Well, it's essentially the way it works is that the rent and the subsidy about equal each other at the moment. And then, so you're starting at naught. So you have the opportunity cost of farming it and producing either a, a crop or cattle off it, which would amount to about another £70 an acre. So round figures... You know, so potentially you could make £70 an acre from that space? It, exactly. Right. There or thereabouts. Right. I'm left with a conundrum. I, I don't necessarily approve of some of the government schemes, which I might be able to include it as part of a whole farm scheme. I don't like meddling with things like set-aside which upset market conditions and upset how farmers might decide to farm their land. I don't agree with it. I don't actually know what Tim's opinion of set-aside is other than the fact that we're all looking at each other saying we're going through this proposal phase now so that either the government will impose set-aside on us as a percentage of our cropped area or we can come up with a voluntary scheme. Now, if we've got to do it, a voluntary scheme is probably the best because then we can score points probably and it will lead to more environmentally beneficial areas being set aside because you'll get points under certain criteria for doing it. Yeah. That might rescue us. But if the price of wheat goes up next year, and it's almost certainly going to, and if you look a few years ahead, <coughs> you know everybody says that food is going to become shorter, therefore the commodity price is going to go up. Yeah. What happens then? Isn't um, it a puzzle? It is a puzzle, yeah. How, yeah, it's how do you measure difficult. the environmental benefit of a piece of ground? Now, the RSPB are suggesting that we can use farmland bird numbers as a measure of how successful you are. But if you've got a huge population of badgers which keep eating your ground-nesting birds, they won't have that discussion, will they? And I, I, it was a quote, actually, that uh, a meeting I was at last night, that the RSPB have promised to have a mature... <laughs> mature 
discussion about predation. <laughs> and I thought, oh yeah, because they've always denied it yeah. out of hand, that they don't see raptors and badgers as a problem to ground nesting or any other birds for that matter. Well, I'm not sure that they see cats as a problem yet. Similarly. Well, they can't. I mean, you, you and I both have, have looked at the, uh, the, what the RSPCA <laughs> say about cats. It's a Ask dodgy RSPB. ground and they can't... RSPB, sorry. Yeah, and they, they just can't because it's political insanity for them to, uh, to start to criticise people's pets. They just avoid it and they're, they're so sitting on the fence. It's astonishingly grim, really. Maybe so, but what a difficult thing it is when you've got individuals blaming others for a lack of set-aside. Here we are, we have paid for one year's set-aside extra. Mm. It's cost the company £1,400. The credit crunch is here. Do we carry on? Can we afford to carry on? Who, what other individual would pay £1,400? None that I know of. No. How do you decide what to do to be balanced and for the best? I don't know what the answer is. I would be interested in any listeners emailing us or phoning us with suggestions because there must be thousands of farmers who are proud of the fact that they've set aside a piece of land. On the other hand, there are another thousand farmers telling them You know, the NFU, I've spoken to the NFU, and they are telling you to plough that up because this country will need food. And the other problem is that you're trying to, or those that want to, are trying to impose a set of rules which is the same for Lower Blakemere Farm as it is for a farm in Lincolnshire or wherever, and they're not comparable. You know, a Fenland farm is completely different. It has a different selection of species. And even wider than that, you try and apply it to Europe. Well, Europe extends from virtually Scandinavia right down to southern Greece. Frankly, there aren't any rules that are going to encompass that lot sensibly. Quite frankly, you're right. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) Do you quite frankly agree with that? Yeah, yeah. Quite frankly. Quite frankly. Here we go. A short-eared owl fact. Short-eared owls are a European conservation concern, and so they are on the amber list of species. Now, time's running out. So, Richard, I want... 15 seconds, starting from now, on, on how you ended up at HFT, Hugh Fernley Withinstalls, and what went on. Okay, well, it was, uh, when, when did I go down last, um, I probably used, I thought, that's not where it's seven seconds. Surely that's HFW, HFW. <laughs> Well, it depends. Oh, I suppose it depends on what you think of him. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hereford Fork Trucks. <laughs> I know. I know what you meant. Thank you, Rich. Anyway, yeah. that's the end of that article. <laughs> so we'll hear about that next week. Um, Farmer Phil, we need to test your grain. A live grain testing. I wonder how you did get on with him. Oh, it was a good day, actually. Was that Fantastic a good day? day. Nice. Yeah, yeah, it was really was interesting. Was it nice? It was nice, yeah. Nice. It was nice. <laughs> Excellent. It was nice, yeah. Now, Farmer Phil, why are we testing grain in the dining room? Well, basically... Um, Living room. As, as those who, who follow me on Twitter will know, um, we're sending wheat out at the moment. And yesterday, yesterday, day before, we had two loads, i.e. 60 tonnes, rejected up in Manchester on the basis that their moisture content was too high. Now, we had tested the wheat here. We've got two moisture meters, which are calibrated annually. They're quite expensive things. They're nearly £1,000 each. <coughs> the reason we have two is so that if one... So that little thing you've got in front of you there is yeah. uh, a cluster grand? Yep. Good Lord. And the reason we have two 
one is a spear and this one in front of me is a, a little sample meter but the reason we have two is if one for some reason goes wrong and they start to, to not agree with each other right. you know that right. whereas if you only had one you might not realize an obvious consequences. Why, why is it important? Does it matter if the wheat's a bit wet? No, the reason for the moisture content being important is that over, in this case, about 16% moisture, there's an increased likelihood of mycotoxins, which are basically moulds, funguses, all that sort of thing, growing in the wheat. And those mycotoxins are harmful, notably to humans. Is That's it why. going for humans to eat them? This is going for gluten extraction, so they'll extract the gluten for human consumption, and then they'll use the rest for animal feed. So short-eared owl fact. Short-eared owls eat small mammals, especially voles. Right. There are plenty of those up there, aren't there? Yep. Yeah, absolute vole paradise Inundated with voles, yeah. So, essentially, the idea is that we dry our wheat. In this case, this particular lot, surprisingly enough, last harvest was dry off the combine. Really? So we think, and it, we put it into the store... It's been aerated over the winter so that we've got ventilation spears to keep it nice and cool and fresh, and we duly load it out. And their moisture meter up at the mill in Manchester seems to think that it's 16.3% moisture, and we'll find out what my moisture meter thinks it is. But hasn't the mill been deciding that a lot of people's wheat is moist? Well, of course, this year, because we've had such a wet harvest, there are a lot of problems because a lot of wheat has been dried, a lot of wheat is of a poor quality so there have been an inordinate amount of rejections for a number of reasons but our biggest problem is that as far as I'm concerned my moisture meter within reason agrees with the moisture meters of those people we've been selling wheat to until now and to give you an idea of the cost so if each load of wheat is worth about three thousand pound the cost of having a load rejected is about five hundred pounds Right. So that there's a thousand pounds worth of bill going to go against those two loads of wheat. Good God. If I can't prove that that is that moisture reading is inaccurate. Right. right get over there, Rich. <laughs> we need to, <laughs> we need witnesses. Yeah. <clears throat> so. Okay. This, here he goes. This device. What we do is we pour the wheat into the sensor until it's. So so it's quite literally. It looks like a mushroom inside a little aluminium cup. It's quite a sophisticated thing. You have to get enough into it. Almost as though it's on a sort of balance scales. Yeah, it's... I don't, don't ask me how it works, I don't know. So then we press the button that says wheat, and then we say percentage water. Stop! We've run out of time. So next week you'll be able to find out the measurements on Farmer Phil's moisture meter as witnessed by Ricardo... Michael and myself, this has become a two-parter. It's a cliffhanger, dear listener. I know, you're annoyed. You're hanging on the edge of your seat waiting for the result. Tough cookie. Bye from me. I can hardly wait. (laughs) 